think one of the, so- the things that that song uh, does well and mirrors tonight's study is the, the difference between sort of present conflict and future rest. And um, that's where Joel has moved from and where he's going to. You'll recall the first half of the book was two, um, two cycles about the enemy and the oppressor and the devastation of the land. We had the locusts that came through and, and stole away years and stole away blessing. And it left them with shame and lamentation and lit very little. And then there's the anticipation of even, an even greater enemy that was on the march. This uh, human army that was coming by God's command to judge and to execute judgment. And uh, we ended, both of those cycles ended with this call to repentance, a call to uh, respond with obedience. And uh, that was chapter 1, verse 14, consecrate a fast, call a sacred assembly, gather the elders, cry out to the Lord. And then Joel even did that in verse 19, O Lord, I cry to you, I cry out. And the beasts of the field also cry out, verse 20. And then the end of the second cycle, which was where we left off last week, uh, there was the, the parallel section. Blow the trumpet in Zion, chapter 2, verse 15. Consecrate a fast, call a sacred assembly, gather the people, sanctify the congregation. Assemble the elders, gather the children and nursing babes. Let the bridegroom go out from his chamber and the bride from her dressing room. Let the priests who minister to the Lord weep before the porch and the altar Weep between the porch and the altar, and let them say, here's the prayer even supplied for them, spare your people, O Lord, for two reasons. Number one, we're yours, right? Don't give your heritage to reproach, that the nation should rule over them. Reason number two, your name is at stake in, uh, in the way that we are treated before the people. Why should they say among the peoples, where is their God? So for those two reasons in their prayer, God, don't, don't give us away because we are your inheritance. We're your, your people, your stuff. Uh, and then don't let your reputation be challenged or even suffer reproach itself. So there's that big pause. Everything we've heard before was prophetic woe and everything we'll hear from here on out is prophetic wheel or prophetic blessing. So starting in chapter 2, verse 18, there are two, uh, two cycles, again, in the second half of blessing. This, this first part is even called, or that they're both called oracles of assurance. It's a good way to say it, that God is going to hear their prayers, that he is going to restore, um, and even do more than restore what was lost. You can see throughout these sections that he refers both to what the locusts have taken and to what Assyria or Babylon has taken, what the great army of the north has taken. Um, yeah, so let's jump into that. There, there's uh, that section at the end of chapter 2 as well, which in the Hebrew canon is its own chapter, which was verses 28 through 32. It's also that anticipation of God pouring out his spirit, which kind of stands between the two sections. So, um, Let's take these a little bit at a time. Uh, Immediately after the anticipation of the prayer having been uttered, God, please don't abandon us. 
you know, spare your people for these two reasons. Then verse 18, the Lord will be zealous. He will reply. The Lord will be zealous for his land and pity his people. And the Lord will answer. And he will say to his people, behold, I will send you grain and new wine and oil. Now those three come up a few times throughout these last two chapters. These are the agricultural staples of the time. So this is satisfaction. This is blessing. But you'll remember back to the beginning, chapter 1, particularly with the locusts, that when the locusts ravaged the land, uh, they took everything. We're in Joel. Sorry if that was in question. You guys searching out what book we're in? Joel. (laughs) Sorry. I had uh, the sixth sense there. Okay. Um, So what have the locusts taken away? Well, they've taken away... Um, you remember verse, chapter 1, verse 5. They've taken away the wine, so the drunkards wake up. They've taken away, verse 9, the grain offering and the drink offering, so worship was affected. Um, they've taken away, verse 11, the wheat and the barley because the harvest in the field has perished. Verse 13, about the priests. Wake up, priests, because at the end there, the grain offering and the drink offering are withheld. And then in the, in the prayer uh, or the call to repentance in the middle of chapter 2 he had said go ahead call return to the Lord rend your heart not your garments because who knows if he'll return and relent and leave a blessing behind him and that means the restoration of the land so that end of verse 14 you have grain for the offering and wine for the drink offering for the Lord your God so not only is it a restoration of you know, their existence, but it's a restoration of the worship system too. When he says, I will send you grain, new wine, and oil, and you will be satisfied by them. He's taking away the physical distress. He's taking away the religious distress. And he's taking away the social distress. They're no longer a reproach among the nations either. Then parallel to the restoration of the land in 18 and 19, he describes the removal of the enemy. In verse 20, um, so he will remove far from you the northern army. So there was the second enemy from chapter 2 that's taken away. And he drives him away into a barren and desolate land with his face toward the eastern sea and his back toward the western sea. His stench will come up and his foul odor will rise because he has done monstrous things. So the beautiful thing here is uh, the strength of God against the enemies of God. There's three things that are described in that verse. The removal, which is supposed to cause us to think about exile. So the bad guys are also exiled. Uh, And then they are also, um, he says, I will drive them away. So he splits them up. There's a scattering, which is one of the things that occurs in exile. Uh, And that face toward the eastern sea, back toward the western sea, is like the front of the army is is, uh, driven one way, and the back of the army is driven another way. They're split up. So they're separated, vulnerable. And then uh, in the end of verse 20, they die. So there's death that their stench comes up and their foul odor will rise. So this is, uh, as we'll see later on in chapter 3 as well, this is the great reversal. The very things that the northern army did to other people are now being done to them. What did they do? Take people into exile. Now God will take them into exile. What did they do? Split people apart, break apart families, steal and destroy. They're going to be split apart. And they killed and left a wake of ashes and death behind them, 
And so God is going to give them death as well. There's a bridge between the end of verse 20 and verse 22. And uh, I would be curious of some other translations of these two phrases. So um, the phrase at the end of verse 20, because he has done, New King James, monstrous things. Uh, what other words do we have for monstrous things there at the end of verse 20? Great things. King James, that's interesting to me. I would have thought that would be parallel to this one. So great things, that's probably going to be the main other one. Are there any other translations? Okay. That, that presents, uh, normally these two translations would be parallel, but that presents the other option. So how about the end of verse 21, Don? For the Lord has done marvelous things. Great things. Okay, that's a, it's a helpful way to represent it because it is the same word that's being used. Uh, obviously, if the, it's the, uh, the word gadol, I believe, which is just uh, seismic, something, something large. Uh, so the enemies have done great and terrible things, you might say, and God has done great and wonderful things. So that's why New King James renders it monstrous and marvelous, but it is the same word. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, absolutely. It's just, it is helpful for us to have the visible representation that the same Hebrew word is being used. So I appreciate great and great. But yeah, there, it's an interpretive step to go great in what way? Great and terrible, great and, great and wonderful, basically. Um, so verse 20, uh, uh, end of verse 20 into 21 through 27. Remember 28 and following those next five verses is their own chapter. So 21 through 27 is this uh, prophetic poem of restoration. And it's a poem of comfort. It's a poem away from fear toward rest and assurance that God will uh, bring peace and shalom to this devastated, hurt area. So here, we'll just read 21 through 27. He says, Fear not, O land. Be glad and rejoice, for the Lord has done great or marvelous things. Fear not, beasts of the field, for the open pastures are springing up, and the tree bears its fruit. The fig tree and the vine yield their strength. Be glad then, you children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God. For he has given you the former rain faithfully, and he will cause the rain to come down for you, with the former rain and the latter rain in the first month. The threshing floors shall be full of wheat, and the vats shall overflow with new wine and oil. So I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the crawling locust, the consuming locust, and the chewing locust, my great army which I sent among you. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied, and praise the name of the Lord your God, who has dwelt wondrously with you. And my people shall never be put to shame. Then you shall know that I am in the midst of Israel. I am the Lord your God, and there is no other. My people shall never be put to shame. Comforting poem of restoration. You can see a few of the uh, literary devices that are being used there. Some of the repeti uh, repetition. It's an anti-fear piece of literature. Uh, so fear not land, and then 22, fear not beasts of the field. Uh, certainly by implication, fear not people. <laughs> uh, then you have the, the reiteration of be glad and rejoice. So it's uh, the fact that God is going to do these things, the, the, prophesy, the prophecy, the promise. 
um, cause today joy, even though today is not the day of the restoration. They're still rejoicing and glad because they have the confidence of restoration. That's certainly an important principle for us. Peter would pick that up. This is our day of exile, but we live it with hope. We live it with confidence. So he says, be glad and rejoice uh, in verse 21, and then be glad, children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God in verse 23. He gives the illustration, end, end of 23 into 24, of the, the promise of God to bring consistent rain from the beginning to the end of the rain season. And what will that produce? Well, it will produce the abundant harvest. There's the triad of wheat, wine, and oil. So the threshing floors are full. The vats are overflowing with new wine and oil. So now we have not just a minimal provision, but an abundant provision that they are overflowing with these things. And in so doing, the fact that it's not just full, but it's overflowing is what leads us into verse 25, the idea of restoration. So restoring something that in the past was lost. This is actual in the account, right? We believe there, there probably was this literal locust swarm that came through. And it's a beautiful metaphor as well. Um, because you, you think, just think of life in general. We have, we have the pattern of Israel's life. And we see this in redemptive history. Like from, from the brokenness of the fall, there is great loss. There is... There are things that have been eaten, things that have been destroyed, things that are very broken, and we live in that brokenness. And there is this promise of fullness, of restoration, of healing, in such a way that not only says, all right, I guess it's okay. I guess I can, I'll guess I'll move forward now. But in a way that heals what happened, um, it brings even past tense satisfaction. And only God is able to do that, uh, but that is a part of his promise, a restoration of the loss, a restoration the years that the swarming locust ate. And then he goes through the list of the four locusts, just like chapter 1, verse 4, the uh, swarming, the crawling, the consuming, and the chewing locust. End of verse 25, we've noted this once or twice uh, in the past few weeks, but who was it that commanded the army of locusts? God did. So I think this is one of the reasons that he's able to offer restoration because he's also the one that sent the brokenness. So he says that my great army, which I sent among you. So now they are, now the two armies are parallel. Now the army of locusts was sent by God and the army, the great Northern army was also sent and commanded by God. The fruit of the restoration is verse 26 and 27. So here's maybe a, a, an end picture that they eat in plenty and are satisfied and praise the name of the Lord their God who has dwelt wondrously with you. And then this statement used twice, once in 26 and once in 27, and my people shall never be put to shame. So there's an end of the reproach. We saw that this last week in Genesis. That, you know, Rachel experienced great reproach for those six or seven years. And it was her barrenness, her barrenness, her barrenness. And then in the restoration, 
her reproach was gone. So he's saying no more will there be shame or reproach of the people. Never again will there be a question of the presence of God. Verse 27, you'll know that I am in the midst of Israel. There will never be a question of who uh, Israel belongs to exclusively, who Israel worships exclusively. There won't be any more uh, syncretism in Israel's worship system. In this grand restoration, there is a restoration of true worship as well. So that's where he says uh, that I am the Lord your God and there is no other. And then restatement, my people shall never be put to shame. That's a hopeful poem. (laughs) Um, That the end will all be well. The end will be full. So full that we will have a measure of forgetfulness of the emptiness that we experienced. And 28 through 32, that's its own section. There's chapter 3 in the Hebrew canon. So we looked at, we looked at this in the introduction a little bit, but uh, this is the promise of the Spirit and the inauguration of the eschaton. So let's read 28 through 32. There's kind of two pieces you'll see. 28 and 29 is the first, and then 30 through 32 is the second. So it'll come to pass afterward that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh, Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, your young men shall see visions, and also on my men servants and on my maid servants I will pour out my spirit in those days. Now show wonders in the heavens and in the earth, blood and fire and pillars of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness, the moon into blood, before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be deliverance, as the Lord has said among the remnant whom the Lord calls. So a few things to point out here. Once again, we'll just remember from the introduction, this is a, this is a, a, a big shift in how the Spirit of God was interacting with the people of God. So previously in the Old Testament, you have um, that the presence of God is there in a location. The presence of God is even visible with you know, maybe a pillar of fire or a cloud um, and during the night and during the day. Or that in, in the Holy of Holies, you have visible representations of the very presence of God. And he was there. And as long as he was there, that was good. And then the Spirit of God would individually visit for particular purposes or for particular anointments, individual people. And that would at times come and at times go. You can hear that cry from David in Psalm 51, right? Don't take your spirit from me. Uh, so this idea, there's a twofold idea in the, the second phrase of verse 28, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. It communicates two new ideas or unique ideas. That it would be poured out is the idea of fullness. It was fully theirs. Um, and then that, it go, that it's poured out on all flesh means that the range of the Spirit of God is, has moved drastically as well. That to the entire spiritual Israel, everyone receives the, a full measure of the Spirit of God. So those are new ideas and a grand idea even late, later on in this text um, when he says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord. There's this anticipation that this is even outside of uh, the house of national Israel. So it's all true Israel now gets a full measure of the Spirit of God. Peter 
in his sermon at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. This is the beginning of his sermon, and he quotes almost the whole thing. He does make one um, maybe important, at least, at least one important shift in some of the language, and that is in the first phrase of verse 28. We have, and it would come to pass afterward or after these things, and Peter says, uh, and it will come to pass in, those, or, uh, in, the, in the last days. So what Peter's doing is he's sort of like starting a clock to the last days. He's saying that the, the, the eschaton, the last things, all of the last things that we hear in the prophets, because at this point, Revelation hasn't been written. So all the things, the day of the Lord uh, that the prophets have spoken about, all of these end prophecies, the clock's begun on those things. We're in that time period now. And we see that with the evidence of the Spirit of God being poured out in this way. The fullness of God poured out to all of his people. So the evidence that uh, the, the, the fullness of the Spirit of God is poured out is the prophecies, the dreams, the visions, and then the reiteration 29 I'll pour out. And then the evidence that it's toward all people is the sons, daughters, old men, young men, men servants, maid servants. So even those who are servants in the house, everyone receives uh, this gift of the Spirit. So Peter's saying at Pentecost, this time is now. This time has begun. The inauguration of the eschaton. So that was one of the things that everyone was anticipating the Messiah to do, is to pour out the Spirit of God. And the other thing they're anticipating for him to do is to bring judgment. And that, that's the shift. At 28 and 29 is the pouring out of the Spirit. 30, and 30 through 32 is the judgment. So I'll show wonders in the, uh, in the heavens and in the earth, blood, fire, pillars of smoke, sun turned to darkness, moon into blood, before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. Um, so... There have been a variety of different interpretive approaches to, to what Peter was doing at Pentecost. Uh, we just sort of walked through what I believe it's doing. He's starting the clock on the last days, saying that we're in them now. So there's nothing left that we're waiting for in order for Jesus to be the judge. Like we're, it's any time. It's in this time, in these last days. Um, and yet it anticipates some of these perhaps natural disasters or signs or evidences that are going to be this immediate precursor to his judgment in verse 30 and 31. So I don't know if this is the most technical way to say it, but uh, it seems like to me as though we're living between verses 29 and 30, that we have received the Spirit of God and we're living in the last days and we are ready, the, every, the pump is primed for uh, this great and awesome day of the Lord to begin with these signs. 32 is uh, <laughs> interesting, beautiful. We noted, we won't go into uh, Romans tonight, but Paul picks up this uh, phrase, whoever shall, or, and it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Notice the, um, the poetry here. So you have the calling, the individual's calling on the Lord, and what occurs, salvation. So those are A and B, calling, the people call, and they're saved. And then those are reversed in the, on our way back out of verse 32. For in Mount Zion and in Mount Jerusalem, there shall be what? Deliverance. There's salvation. There's B prime. Uh, as the Lord has said among the remnant whom the Lord calls. 
So you have A, these people calling on the name of the Lord, towards B, salvation. Why? Because in Judah and Jerusalem, God has brought salvation because he's called people. So there you have uh, the beauty, uh, the mystery, the joy that is people crying out to God because God has called on them to cry out to him. The second cycle, let's look at chapter 3. This one is particularly oriented toward um, the future day of the Lord. So I think the last one addressed both the, the locust and the nation that came against them. This one uh, maybe picks up with the nations that have come against them, even historically, and moves toward a final judgment of all of them cumulatively. So starting in three, let's read through uh, one through three. It says, Behold, in those days and at that time, when I bring back the captives of, Jerusalem, of Judah and Jerusalem, so there's exile that's occurred, I will also gather all nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat, and I will enter into judgment <clears throat> with them there. On account of my people, my heritage Israel, whom they have scattered among the nations, they have also divided up my land. They have cast lots for my people, have given a boy as payment for a harlot, and sold a girl for wine that they may drink. So this is a, a bit of a sum, uh, summary statement of what's going to happen. So there's going to be, once again, renewal, restoration, calling back from exile, so putting together some of the pieces that have been broken. Previously, right, there was removal or exile, scattering, kind of like in the last one. And God's going to bring those things back together. And then he, he brings together, so speaking of bringing everybody together, not only am I going to bring my people together, I'm going to bring all of their people together. I'm going to bring all the nations together that oppose me. And we're going to go down to this valley, the valley of Jehoshaphat. Um, Jehoshaphat is simply two words put together. Uh, Jeha, right? Jehovah. And then Shaphat, which is judgment. So he's saying, we're going to bring them down to the valley of God's judgment. Quite simple there. And he says, and unsurprisingly, end of verse two, and we will, or middle of verse two, and we will enter into judgment with them there. So in the valley of God's judgment, there's going to be a great judgment. Why? Well, because of my people, my heritage. So there's the call back to the prayer in chapter two, verse 17. Don't give your heritage to reproach. And he says, you're right. This is my heritage, Israel, whom they have scattered. Remember chapter 2, verse 20, that God's going to drive away or scatter into a barren and desolate land, the northern army, because they've divided up my land. So there's the idea, the accusation that they've done the very thing that God's going to do to them. Uh, in the exile, in verse 3, is this picture of just how cheap how cheaply they treated people, individuals. So they've cast lots for people. They're like, there's all of these prisoners of war. What should we do with them? Well, let's throw dice. Let's cast lots. You take these ones. You take these ones. You know, you get the high roll. You get more. You have the low roll. You get less. Um, in fact, I'm going to take all of my prisoners and I'm going to use them to pay for things. I'm going to give a boy um, so that I'm able to have a night with a prostitute. And then I'm going to give a girl, uh, and then I get a nice drink of wine. So it's just cheap. They, they've treated people very cheaply, right? Divvying them up, using them for their financial, uh, like using them as a payment for their pleasures. 
And God has taken account of all of these things and is calling them down to the valley of his judgment. Uh, Let's read 4 through 8. Here's more accusation. Indeed, what have you done or what have you to do with me, Tyre and Sidon, and all the coasts of Philistia? Will you retaliate against me? But if you retaliate against me swiftly and speedily, I will return your retaliation upon your own head, because you have taken my silver and my gold and have carried into your temples my prized possessions, also the people of Judah and the people of Jerusalem, yet you have sold to the Greeks that you may remove them far from their borders. Behold, I will raise them out of the place to which you have sold them and will return your retaliation upon your own head. I will sell your sons and your daughters into the hand of the people of Judah and they will sell them to the Sabaeans, to a people far off for the Lord has spoken. Okay, so here's accusation of what they've done and reversal once again. The very things you did, I'm going to do to you. Interesting, and this is one of the points of people trying to find the dating of Joel. Why is it Tyre and Sidon and Philistia? Why, why, why are the coastal nations mentioned here? Particularly if at this point they're not the most powerful people around. If they're not the, the nations to be feared currently. This isn't the northern army. Tyre and Sidon and Philistia are not. These would be uh, west coast to them. Um, and why aren't Egypt, uh, Babylon, Assyria, why are none of those mentioned here? There's a few options. Uh, one is that Tyre and Sidon and Philistia have done something that's unmentioned in Scripture. Okay, could be. Certainly many of the nations had many offenses against Judah and Jerusalem that aren't recorded for us. Um, option number two is that while the northern army has attacked Jerusalem, uh, the coastal armies, the marauders have moved in and they've taken their plunder as well. They've taken their spoils. So um, kind of the accusation that you, you hit a man while he was down. Or they're intentionally used as the weaker nations because even, like it's sort of a, an elevation of the significance of sin because even the weaker nations are going to be called to the valley of Jehoshaphat to be held accountable for what they've done. I don't even know that I have a strong preference between a few of those, but those are, those are a couple of the options, interpretive options on the table for why Tyre and Sidon and the coast of Philistia are mentioned instead of perhaps some of the, like the army of the north. Uh, it's also unique that uh, Tyre and Sidon are the ones that are accused here of taking the silver and gold and carrying uh, into their temples his prized possessions. We know certainly the Babylon... Uh, and Syria did that, Babylon particularly, with their uh, capturing of Jerusalem and taking the, the treasure out of the temple into their, into their land. But in some other way, Tyre and Sidon and Philistia are also held accountable for the same sort of thing. So they've taken um, God's stuff, and then they've took, taken God's people, and they sold them to the Greeks. Once again, a dating issue. Why are the Greeks mentioned? Well, I think it'll be pretty clear that the reason the Greeks are mentioned is actually not because they're a great and terrible nation yet, but because, as he says, they are afar off. So they sold them to the Greeks, who are presently, seems to be obscure in the text. They're just way far away. Uh, they've removed them far from their borders, verse 6. Uh, so they're far from the land right, that they were promised. And that's something that God's going to do right back to the nations of Tyre, Sidon, and the coast of Philistia in verse 8. Um, or, I mean, verse 7 starts the switch, but 
verse 8 explicitly mentions that they then will be sold into the hands uh, of Judah and to the Sabaeans, who are Arabian traders. Uh, traders. And uh, that's a far-off nation. Okay, so he says, just like you sold them to a far-off nation, they will sell you to a far-off nation. Just as you uh, have treated their children cheaply, so now he's going to sell your sons and your daughters into their hand. This is what the Lord has spoken. This is what is uh, just and right in order to pay for the crimes committed. So, when Israel and Judah, we looked at this last week, when Israel and Judah are judged, what's the call? The call was repentance. The call was true worship. The call was responding rightly. When the nations are judged, what's the call? Verses 9 through 11 is the call. And this is packed with um, imperatives. So you remember uh, back to like chapter 2, verse 15, blow the trumpet, consecrate a fast, call a sacred assembly, gather the people, sanctify the congregation, that whole section. All of those were imperatives. This is how Israel must respond to the judgment of God. Now here, these are all imperatives for the nations. He says, tell the nations this, prepare for war, wake up the mighty men, let all the men of war draw near. Let them come up. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let even the weak say, I am strong. Assemble and come, all you nations, and gather, to get, uh, and gather together all around. Cause your mighty ones to go down there, O Lord. So the nations are called to continue in their retaliation, to continue in their fight against Yahweh. Because this is their nature, and this is their desire, so they're called further into it. So get everybody together, and you, you, I'm sure you probably noticed like the ironic reversal of Isaiah 2.4, Micah 4.3, right, where we'll beat swords into plowshares and spears into pruning hooks, right, this movement from war to peace. Here he says, not for these guys. These guys... Let's take even the farming instruments, the instruments of peace and civilization, and move them toward instruments of destruction, instruments of war, that they're going to, you know, raise their puny swords against Yahweh. But he tries to make them sound strong, right? The mighty men and their swords and their spears, and, and even those who would have stayed away from battle, like even the, maybe the puny ones, those who are weak or unable, who are maybe who would have gotten exemption from the draft, even they get to come to the valley of destruction, the valley of judgment, and say, I'm strong, I can fight, ironically, against Yahweh. So God brings all of them together. It's a bit ominous, isn't it? <laughs> all of his enemies assembled in one valley, and here comes, I mean, the valley's named the Lord Judges. So, um, yeah, wake them up. Wake up the nations. Verse 12, get down to the valley of judgment because there God is going to sit to judge all the surrounding nations. Now, verse 13 is what God does at the valley of judgment. And it's a very strong, it's very strong. It's a taunting song. It's a, it's a song of his exaltation so far above them, so deep in judgment against them. He says, this one verse, put in the sickle for the harvest is ripe. 
Come, go down, for the winepress is full. The vats overflow, for their wickedness is great. So the whole picture um, is that of a grape harvest. So probably better than sickle, we would have like some sort of harvesting knife in a vineyard. All of the vines are full. Look at this entire valley. It's just ripe. It's ready. And so you put in the harvesting knife because the harvest is ripe. And you fill up the wine press. And then God treads on these grapes. And what happens? Well, the juice flows. This deep red juice flows in the valley. So it's probably a, akin to the picture of Armageddon. It's akin to the, these, these last, the idea of these last battles when all the people are gathered against him and the blood is flowing freely. Why? Their wickedness is great. The deeds that they've done against him are deep transgressions. So it's his taunting song about what's going to happen. What are maybe some of the, the signs of these times? <laughs> 14, 15, 16, maybe 17, even, right? Okay, so multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. Sounds again like uh, chapter 2, verse 30. The sun and the moon will grow dark. The stars will diminish in their brightness. And this sounds like the line of the tribe of Judah. The Lord will also roar from Zion and utter his voice from Jerusalem. The heavens and the earth will shake, but the Lord will be a shelter for his people and the strength of the children of Israel. So you shall know that I am the Lord your God, dwelling in Zion, my holy mountain. Then Jerusalem shall be holy, and no alien shall ever pass through her again. So it's a summation of these times that everyone gathers against God, that there's great... um, like the, the, sign, the sun and the moon and the stars, like all of this very dramatic natural or supernatural demonstration that the day of the Lord is here. Uh, and then the judge speaks. The Lord roars from Zion and the result is trembling. The whole earth shakes under his judgment. And even in the middle of that, this is very Psalm 46, yet even in the middle of all the trembling, God is also a place of security. There's something that's not moving, something that's not trembling, and that is his people. So while he, you know, he's the one that's causing everything to tremble, but his people are not trembling. His people are safe with him. Right? So the great and powerful good is also a great and powerful security. And the Beautiful picture at the end, 18 through 21. So 18 is maybe the picture. And then 19 through 21 is another short poem. So 18, and it will come to pass in that day that the mountains will drip with new wine. The hills shall flow with milk. And all the brooks of Judah shall be flooded with water. A fountain shall flow from the house of the Lord and water the valley of Acacias. So this would be the picture of New Jerusalem and New Earth, right? A river flowing out of New Jerusalem, watering his new world. And it's a place of abundance, a place of true shalom where there is peace. There's no reason to look over your shoulder because there would be nothing there to fear. 
It's complete security, uh, complete trust and joy and a breath of fresh air for the first time, freedom, uh, abundance, no envy, no strife, no tears. This is a very stunning Edenic picture, right? The return to a truer and greater Eden, which is new earth, new Jerusalem, where the presence of God is with his people in the fullest of all ways, uh, which means we have complete joy. 19 through 21 is the last poem, and he brings up the competition or the contrast between what happens with the nations and what happens with Judah, the people of God. So um, Egypt is a desolation. That's the result. Egypt is empty. It's uninhabited. Edom is a desolate wilderness. No one's there because of the violence against the people of Judah. For they have shed innocent blood in their land. So in verse 19, we have the two pieces of the, of the poem immersed. And the first one is the idea of habitation. If people live there, if, it's, if, if, they're, if it is a place of dwelling or if it's not. So God's enemies, their land is uninhabited. There's no one there anymore. They've been destroyed. Why? And the second piece of the poem is bloodshed because they shed innocent blood. That's why. So uninhabited, innocent blood. We'll see those repeated. Verse 20, but Judah lives. Judah's inhabited. Jerusalem from generation to generation. So an eternal habitation. That's the reality of the people of God. So not the people of God removed. They don't live in their land. The people of God, confident, dwelling eternally in the land of God. So Judah abides Jerusalem from generation, so inhabitation. Um, and then 21 is quite, it's quite difficult in Hebrew, and, um, but, but you can see that it's about bloodshed, right? Uh, so that's, that's the second part of the poem is be prime. I will acquit them of the guilt of bloodshed whom I had not acquitted. And I think the point is actually, it's not about Judah and Jerusalem, I don't believe. I think it's about the nations again, he's, that he's saying there is actually no pardon for the shedding of innocent blood, that there is full judgment, complete judgment for the shedding of innocent blood. So enemies land uninhabited. Why? Because of the innocent blood that was shed. Judah abiding forever in the land. The innocent blood is going to be avenged. Final note is A again, for the Lord dwells in Zion. So why do we have um, the people dwelling and uh, the innocent blood avenged? Well, because God is there. God dwells in Zion. So the final note of that poem is the, uh, that the place is inhabited also by God, not just by his people. So in this, in this whole the second portion. There's a few things to take away. There's a, there's a lot, in fact, that we could talk through. But um, one of the things I think I unintentionally skipped over that's, that's an important point to draw out is chapter 2, verse 26. This idea that after, after God has acknowledged, I'm the commander of the locust army, I'm the commander of the northern army, I promise to restore you and to restore everything that was ever taken and more. And he says in verse 26, you will eat in plenty and be satisfied. Praise the name of the Lord your God, who has dealt wondrously with you. That's a complete package idea. Like you can't, 
isolate out what God did in his discipline from this idea. That this is the full image of the Father. This is the full image of, of God in his amazing ability to hold both of these realities in his hands. That his bringing of the locusts was wondrous. His bringing of the nations, his raising up of Assyria and Babylon, it was good. It was right. It was righteous. And then his restoration, good, right, and righteous. Everything that God has done along the whole storyline has been phenomenal for the people of Israel. So that was an important point as we think through um, the ebbs and flows of life, the ups and downs, even uh, the chastening of the Lord, as Hebrews 12 would remind us that it's an evidence of his love. Um, everything that God has done in our lives is his wondrous dealing with us, and he promises that it's for our good. I think uh, this whole section exudes hope and should be a good reminder for us as believers living in a dark world that the end of the story is written but not yet experienced, and the end of the story is very bright and brilliant for God's people, that it ends with security, it ends with wholeness, it ends with safety, it ends with uh, this dripping with new wine and the hills flowing with milk and a fountain that flows from the house of the Lord, uh, the beautiful river and the very presence of God and uh, final justice and all of these things. These, uh, these end of revelation pictures are also right here in Joel chapter 3, um, 2 and 3. So that's something that's very helpful and encouraging for us to keep in mind in the middle of the brokenness is the promise of wholeness. Um, and as a part of that, I think the, the joy of knowing, so this is two ideas blended into one. Chapter 2, verse 32, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved because in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there is deliverance because God has promised to restore those that he's called or among the remnant whom the Lord has called. So we have the joy of being on the side of the righteous, on the side of the called, on the side of the ones who have the hope of life uh, the, while the nations do not. And so the, the attendant commands toward being called as righteous are, so now live in the way that God has called us to live. Right? It is uh, the first half of the book, the imperatives in the first half of the book towards true worship that we would have evidence of in Christ and now live in, in him, true worship, rather than, like, we don't have a call to arms against God. There's no reason for us to fight him. And that's encouraging. Like in the moments of maybe doubt or discouragement or wondering if he is, has been true, if he has dealt wondrously with you, uh, to remember that our call as those in Christ is not arms against him, but it is humbling ourselves underneath his sovereignty. Those are a few takeaways anyways. Thoughts, questions about Joel uh, before we close. God is good. He's righteous. He's generous. He's dealt wonderfully, wondrously with us. Uh, mm -hmm. Yeah, you get that, particularly the, the final moments of Day of the Lord, our very end of Revelation. Sickle? 
Thank you. The harvest time. Yeah. Yep. That image is used in a couple different ways throughout. Right? You'd even have the, the wheat separation of wheat and tares. That's another harvest image. Here, the vines are full. They're ready.